Hello and welcome to Beth Takun and Spiritual Seasons, where we are digging into the weekly Torah portions in the light of God's yearly pattern of salvation that we see in the calendar. This week we are in Parsha Va'etchanan, which starts near the end of Deuteronomy chapter 3 and stretches to the middle of chapter 7, about three and a half chapters. Well, before we get into the portion today, I want to do something just a little bit different. Today, as I'm recording, it is the ninth of Av, which began last night. And so I want to begin by bringing a few short thoughts and stories related to a particular aspect of the ninth of Av. Uh, The ninth of Av is a day of mourning, largely because the first temple was destroyed on this day, and then six and a half centuries later, the second temple was destroyed again on this day. It's important for us to mourn on the ninth of Av. For one thing, mourning with Israel on this day connects us within the greater body of Israel, including those of us who are grafted into Israel. And mourning on this day is also a good use of our emotions. You know, we've been talking a bit about training the emotions in the heat of summer. And the ninth of Av comes during summer's hottest days. Let this day be a time where we intentionally activate our emotions in a life-giving way. We know that we can gin up our emotions, so to speak, and sometimes that's good and sometimes that's not so good. Today's a day we should do that in a way that helps us to empathize with the plight of others and the world in general and in our own plight here. And in doing that, we are also connected to others and to the past. Well, the sages have asked what caused the destruction of the temples. And the answer that the first was destroyed because of Israel's idolatry and the second for baseless hatred, hatred without a cause, sinat kinam. And we know that Yeshua says in John 15 that they hated him without a cause. But it was more than that for Yeshua's generation. They hated each other baselessly as the various religious factions fought internally. That was a long time ago. But have we improved? The Talmud says a generation in which the temple is not built is considered to be one in which it was destroyed. Meaning that if God chooses to not rebuild his temple in our generation, we are like the generation in which the temple was originally destroyed. Think about that for a minute. And isn't it the case, over and over again, we choose to focus on our small differences rather than the mountain we have in common, and in focusing on our differences, we are driven apart. So the rabbis say that if baseless hatred is the cause of the destruction of the temple, then the cure is what? The cure is baseless love, love without a cause, love that is unmerited. We might use the word grace or the phrase unconditional love. And how do we most clearly show this kind of love that is unmerited? We can show this especially by loving our enemies, We read Yeshua's words in Matthew 5, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collector tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, Yeshua loved his enemies to the point of dying for them. And we are called to do the same as we follow him. Well, on this topic of loving enemies, as the antidote to the ninth of Av, which we should focus on now and we should be thinking about in this time, and it can go beyond the ninth of Av, 
of uh, who are our enemies and who are the people that we just find it so difficult to get along with um, and how it is that we can show kindness to them. Um, and as we think about the topic of, of loving our enemies, I want to bring now a parable and a couple of quick stories about unmerited love, especially uh, love for enemies. And I think that in hearing stories, the stories stick with us in a way sometimes that just the straight facts don't. And so um, a couple of stories here today, but first a parable. It says, a holy man was engaged in his morning meditation under a tree whose roots stretched out over the river bank. During his meditation, he noticed that the river was rising and a scorpion caught in the roots was about to drown. He crawled out on the roots and reached down to free the scorpion. But every time he did so, the scorpion struck back at him. An observer came along and said to the holy man, Don't you know that's a scorpion and it's the nature of a scorpion to want to sting? To which the holy man replied, that may well be, but it is my nature to save. And must I change my nature because the scorpion does not change its nature? If you are a reborn child of God and follower of Yeshua, your nature is to do kindness, even to an enemy. The kindness may not be returned, but that does not change your nature. Kindness to enemies is your very nature. And so don't fight against that nature. And so a quick quote here now from the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. And so let me say that again. Love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. And now I'll share two true stories that illustrate this idea that Dr. King is sharing. The Bosnian War during the early 1990s pitted Bosnian Serbs against Muslims, making the sides bitter enemies. Rosa and Drago Sorak, a Bosnian Serb couple, told the story that during the war, the Muslim police took away their oldest son, Zoran, for questioning. He never returned. Five months after Zoran's disappearance, Zoran's wife gave birth to a girl. The mother was unable to nurse the child. The city was being shelled, and there were severe food shortages. Infants were dying in droves. The family gave the baby tea for five days, but she began to fade. The baby was dying, Rosa Sorak said. It was breaking our hearts. But on the fifth day, just before dawn, the Soraks heard someone stomping up to their front door. It was their Muslim neighbor, Fadil Fedzik, one of the few people in town who owned a cow. He was wearing black rubber boots and holding a half a liter of milk. Other families insulted Fadil and told him to let the children of their enemies die. But Fadil, the man with a cow and heavy black rubber boots, kept showing up on their porch for 442 days in a row until the Sorak's daughter-in-law and granddaughter left the country. The Sorak said they could never forgive those who took Zoran from them, but they also couldn't forget the kindness of their neighbor, Fadil. Drago Sorak said the milk he had was precious, all the more so because it was hard to keep animals. He gave us 221 liters, and every year at this time, when it is cold and dark, we close our eyes and we can hear the boom of the heavy guns and the sound of Fadil Fezik on the stairs. Here was the power of love, says the story. What this illiterate farmer did would color, color the life of another human being who might never meet him long after he was gone. And one last story here, this one from 1930s Russia. In 1938, a Russian prison about, sorry, in a Russian prison, 
about 250 miserable men were herded together in one small cell. Among them was David Braun. Soon, David became aware of a Greek Orthodox priest in their midst. The old man had been thrown into prison because of his faith. His peaceful, radiant face made him stand out in that awful place like a candle in the dark. You couldn't miss him. It was probably because of this that he became the target for the sarcastic and blasphemous remarks of two of the prisoners. They were continually harassing him. They bumped into him. They mistreated him. They mocked him about everything. They mocked everything that was holy to him. But always the priest was gentle and patient. One day, David received a food parcel from his wife. When people are constantly hungry, receiving a food parcel is something that can't be described. It has to be experienced. David opened the parcel. As he looked up, he saw the old priest looking at his bread with longing eyes. David broke off a piece and gave it to him. To his amazement, the priest took the bread, broke it, and gave it to his two tormentors. My friend, said David, you are hungry. Why did you not eat the bread yourself? Let me be, brother, he answered. They need it more than I. Soon I will go home to my Lord. Don't be angry with me. Soon after that, he died. But never again in this cell, in that cell, did David hear mockery and blasphemy. The old priest, a true servant of the Lord, had fulfilled his commission. Well, let these stories of those who walked true to the teaching and example of Yeshua be encouragements to us to do likewise. We fight baseless hatred through unmerited love. Well, let's turn now to Parsha Va'et Hanan. This portion contains some important passages, including one of the most famous of all, the Shema, which is recited at least two times daily during the daily prayers and maybe a third time before going to bed. The portion begins with Moses telling the people how he pleaded with the Lord to let him cross over the Jordan and see the good land God had prepared for them. Va'et Hanan means, and I pleaded. Moses describes how God doesn't allow him to take the people across the Jordan, but he directs him to go up a summit east of the Jordan to see the land. And God also tells Moses to charge Joshua and encourage and strengthen him because he will be the one to take them over the river. Aleph Beta divides the rest of the portion into three mini speeches that are each set off by a similar sentence that includes the phrase, statutes and rules, or hukim and mishpatim. The first two of these key sentences uh, begin with Moses saying effectively, listen to the statutes and rules, Shema. And the third simply says, these are the statutes and rules that God commanded me to teach you. And so three mini speeches all set off by statutes and rules or Hukim and Mishpatim. Uh, the three mini-speeches are also marked by chapter breaks, 4, 1, 5, 1, and 6, 1. And the third one, 6, 1, starts in 6, 1, and it goes through the beginning of chapter 7. So the first mini-teaching emphasizes what Israel has seen with their own eyes, how God is near to them in an absolutely new and unique way on the earth. This has never happened with another people. And how he brought them out of Egypt and what they saw and heard as they stood before him, before God at Mount Sinai. In the main part of this speech, Moses implores Israel to be careful to not make any idols. At the end of speech number one, we're told that Moses set aside three cities of refuge east of the Jordan. Well, speech number two is a repetition of the Ten Commandments. A lot of important things going on in this passage, in this uh, Torah portion. And so it's a repetition here of the Ten Commandments, which uh, Moses follows with a reminder of how the people were filled with fear and awe of God, such that they requested 
for Moses to talk to God for them. God says that what they have spoken in their fear of him is good, and he even says that he wished they would always have such a heart toward him, that they would always fear him and keep his commandments so that things would go well for him and their descendants. Well, speech number three contains the Shema, including the first line of the Shema and the section that begins, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your resources. So the third speech is focused on a commandment to love God. Well, I want to do a bit of a deep dive now into these three movements of portion Va'et Hanan to see the salvation pattern within them, a progression that is meant to be an encouragement to us at this time of year when we are at the low point of the three weeks and the ninth of Av. So if you can stick with me here, I think you'll be amazed at the way God has designed this portion. You have to put your thinking cap on, and it might help to download and print out the outline that is linked below the video. But I'll try to kind of repeat how the relationships are working. Uh, But if you can take the time to focus on it and really dig into it and absorb it, um, I think you'll see that it's an amazing Torah portion. And God is an amazing God. And so as I have been um, saying all along in this series of teachings, the salvation pattern is everywhere. We just need to develop the sensitivities to pull it out of whatever it is we're looking at. And so on the one hand, being able to see God's deeper pattern makes us simply stand in awe of him and the wonders he has created. But on the other hand, by seeing this story of salvation in so many diverse places, we understand the whole thing more deeply because each of these pictures shines a new light on the others. Each one basically goes through the same steps of salvation, but it's always bringing in its own unique mixture of ideas to do that. And so that sheds light on all the other ones. And so the more you see and learn, the more you are able to spot each of the steps because there are many metaphors for each step. The first step might be called coming out of Egypt, or it might be called the creation of light and the separation of darkness. And so there are so many different metaphors for each step. And as we learn more and more of them, we're able to recognize what we're seeing in the text. So often God actually mixes together these metaphors of of light and darkness and the Moedim and the coming out of Egypt and the harvests and all of that. These, uh, it's not... um, We don't see a complete picture anywhere from the beginning. It's a mixture of all these different symbols working together to tell the story. And so uh, before we get to the three movements of this portion, the portion goes out of its way to begin in the previous chapter with Moses describing how he pleaded with God to allow him to enter the land, and God refuses. And Moses, um, he refers here, to the place that he will ultimately go to die, to Pisgah, which is a a renamed for an area of summits um, east of the Jordan. And one of those is Mount Nebo. So elsewhere in scripture, God says, go up Mount Nebo, and and that is where you will die. Uh, But that is where he will also see the land from. And um, God tells him um, that, so here, Here, before we're beginning these three sermons, God tells him, I'm not going to allow you to go in, but go to that mountain and you will be able to see, and then I'm going to take you from there. So it's important that it begins this way, because the portion is going out of its way to begin with a picture of sin and death, Moses' sin at Meribah that prevents him from entering the land and his eventual death on Mount Nebo. We begin where the context for the salvation story is sin and death, always. And so the beginning of the salvation pattern, or at least the context for it, for for everyone is, you know, everyone that comes after Adam anyway, is the sin of the fathers that results in the death that we are born into, Death is the context for salvation, in other words. 
Well, let's move forward now to speech number one, starting in Deuteronomy 4. Um, now, as part of the opening formula for each speech, the first verse um, also gives reasons for learning and obeying the commandments, right? It says, here are the commandments, or listen to the commandments, or, or hear the commandments, and this is why. And so the reasons are different. They're slightly different in each case. And if we look at the reason that's mentioned first in each case, because each one says several reasons, but if we look at the first one each time in each of the three, we'll see kind of what part of the emphasis is for the speech, for that speech. So for speech number one, the reason has to do with living, that they would live. That which dies in the Lord must be reborn. And so the beginning of the salvation pattern is new life, reconnection to God, as we are brought out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. Reconnection is rebirth. It's new life. And so this first verse is going to mention as the reason for the commandment is life. And so it reads like this. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you and do them that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. Okay, so our first big connection is live. <laughs> That's the beginning of salvation, live. Be reborn. And so as we read through this first speech, we see that Moses emphasizes two big ideas. What Israel has seen with their eyes and that they should be careful to have no other gods, the prohibition against idolatry. This process of rebirth early in the pattern Right? Picture, picture Passover in your mind and that kind of rebirth. It involves us making a choice as to who we will follow, who will be our God. We turn our backs on the gods of Egypt, right? on idolatry, this main topic in this first speech, idolatry, don't make idols. And so at the beginning here of salvation, we turn our backs on the gods of Egypt, and walk out of that place. We choose God over those idols. And in doing that, we who were already living in a place of death, we experience a new kind of death. We die to death. <laughs> and and uh, we experience a new kind of life as we are reborn into a new kingdom, God's kingdom, rather than the kingdom of darkness. But why the emphasis on sight here in this first speech? Well, first, let's make the case that vision is emphasized here. So let me name the verses where we see vision and sight. They're mentioned in verses, or this idea is mentioned in verses 3, 5, 6, 9, 12, 19, 34, and 35. And um, we see it very early in verse 3, and that verse importantly kind of sets a sort of tone, and it says, your eyes have seen, okay? your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor, for the Lord your God destroyed from among you all the men who followed the Baal of Peor. And so, and Baal means Lord, Master, or it can, it's, a, it's a, an idol too, in verse 3, then, we have both the topics uh, of both of the topics of the first speech, which are, which are eyes. You saw with your eyes what God did to those who worshipped those Baal uh, idols. And, and then the second one, which is the idols there. And so Moses is saying, remember what you saw. Reject those idols and choose God. So what does vision, though, have to do with early stages of salvation? Well, in many ways, vision is both a very spiritually elevated sense, but also it's one that robs us of the need for faith. If we um, see something, we've seen it, right? There's no need to trust when you've seen it. 
In many ways, this is the condition of the child who just believes in, by blind, blind faith what they're told. And um, this is what God also gave to Israel at the beginning of his relationship with the nation when they are childlike with him. They saw with their eyes the plagues he poured out on Egypt. They saw with their eyes the splitting of the sea. They saw with their eyes the pillar of cloud and fire during the wilderness journey. And and again, this is sight as a highly elevated, it's a very spiritual uh, sense. But it's also one that doesn't require you to have any kind of faith. You see it? I've seen it, Right? And so it's, it's sort of the, um, the sense that is associated with this early stage here of salvation. What, vi- what vision is, is God allowing himself to be seen early in our salvation journey through miraculous circumstances or situations that one has to stretch to call a mere coincidence. You know how much God bends over backwards When a person is just beginning to reach out to him in faith, maybe they've come to their wit's end and they just, God, they just call out to him maybe. And at that moment, God does something. And it's more than just coincidence. And that person knows it. They see that and they know it, right? He's willing to show himself more boldly when we are very young in him. But that's not where we are meant to end up. As we mature, God withdraws that obvious vision so that we have the opportunity to trust him, to walk in faith. Uh, Yeshua comes, too, with miracles that are his witnesses. His miracles testify that his words are true. He doesn't expect people to just believe him without tangible evidence. And when he is resurrected, he appears to his followers and even allows them to touch his wounds, right? They get to see him. They even get to touch him. And so Moses begins here by saying, remember what you saw, and, um, or at least what this generation's parents had seen, and maybe some of them if they were under 20 years of age when the whole exodus began. Well, um, if, even, if you're, even if it's hard to follow what's going on in these speeches and this progression, just pick up on these points about these different things that are associated with different points in the progression. Sight with the first one, for example. And sight has to do with light, right? The very beginning. Grant said recently in a teaching, everything starts with light, and light is connected to vision. That's how we see. Well, as if to cap off this first speech, We are told that Moses appoints three cities of refuge east of the Jordan. And so why is this detail here? I think the message is that at the beginning, we are rescued from the death sentence. We escape from death. The one who flees to a city of refuge by rights should be killed by the avenger of blood. This is what justice demands. But by his grace, God opens the way of salvation, escaping death here. Well, moving forward to the second speech, which starts in chapter 5, we have the key word learn here. The first verse of speech 2 reads, And Moses summoned all of Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and rules, right? That's our, part of our key formula here, the statutes and rules, that I speak in your hearing today, and why, right? So we're going to find another key idea in the why of the commandments. And you shall learn them and guard and do them. Well, learn is the first sort of reason connected here to his speaking forth of the, the statutes, the hukim and the mishpatim. Learn is a stage of education. And so in the previous speech, the word was live, that's birth, right? And now it's learn. And so after being reborn, we, there's a phase of growing up that is centered on textbooks and learning. And it's a life stage called adolescence. But did you notice when I read that verse that uh, there was another emphasized idea 
in that introductory sentence. So along with learning, we twice have the idea of hearing. And so listen again. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and guard and do them. Well, the bulk of this speech, this second speech, is a repetition of the Ten Commandments, which is what Israel heard. It's what Israel heard directly from God at Mount Sinai. And Moses points out that, you know, he actually says at this point, you didn't see those Ten Commandments, but you heard them. And so whereas speech uh, one emphasized seeing and choosing God, the emphasis in this second one is hearing and covenant with God. So after seeing comes hearing, and after choosing God comes covenant with God, right? We're going deeper now with him. And so we can actually see the progression we're talking about in the layout of the human body. So let me bring in another (laughs) sort of parallel picture. Again, if it's hard to follow what's going on in these speeches, just pick up from these other related things. Well, this is actually an important teaching because these human senses and parts of the body, they crop up everywhere in the Torah And when they do, each carries a specific flavor with it in terms of the salvation pattern and maturity level and development. And so if we look at just the human face, just the human face, which is a little microcosm on its own, and we can also look at the body in a different way, but if we're just looking at the human face itself, it tells the whole story, and we have sight first. Actually, we have a forehead, that's another story, but... um, Below the forehead is sight. That's our first of our senses, we might say, and it's the highest one. And below that comes ears. If you ever learn to draw a face, um, there's a line in the middle of that circle that is your eyes, and then there's another line in the middle that is your nose. Well, anyway, (laughs) uh, we have eyes here, and then ears are a little lower than that. Lower than that is the nose, and lower than that is the mouth and the chin. And so hearing is a bit lower down, and it's going to be a sense that's a little bit more grounded in physicality. We're, we're descending in physicality, physicality as we go down the face, and as we go down the body. And we can see that with the, the sense of hearing, especially in that it's grounded in time. It's dependent on time in a way that vision is not. Vision is instantaneous. I see it. The whole thing is there. I could write a thousand words about what I see, but it's all there in one moment. Uh, With hearing, we have to wait for a sentence to be completed uh, before our brains can assemble it. You know, our our brains are storing all those words. At the end, our brain puts all that together, and we construct meaning. And so, again, vision doesn't require much faith. We see what we see, but faith begins with hearing, we are told in Romans 10. Faith begins with hearing. And so there are more lessons um, as we continue down the face, by the way, and let me just do that real quickly. Uh, Lower than the hearing is the nose and the sense of smell, which is associated with discernment and a higher level of spiritual maturity, right? We're going on to, to, we're birth, learning, and education and discernment is higher still. And um, actual physical particles enter the nose to activate our sense of smell. And so again, we're getting more physical as we descend the face. Finally, we come to the mouth, our organ of speech, and our organ for consuming the physical world so that we can do work in the world. Let it be a lesson to us that our own speech should come last after several other phases of development, right? Well, so there's a lot more that can be said there, um, but we'll have to save that for another time. Let's return to speech number two now in our portion, Va'et Hanan. The final uh, scene in this second speech, right? Remember, 
at the end of the first one, we had the, the appointing of the three cities of refuge. Well, it's important what f- kind of ends each speech as well. All of these are clues. And so at the end of the second speech, um, is Israel fearing God and asking Moses to be their intercessor for them? The people say to Moses, For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of fire as we have and has still lived? And so they're beginning to understand, to understand God's purity, God's purity and their impurity, right? You can't bear up under such purity when you yourself are impure. And so two of the great fruits of hearing and for us two of the great fruits of reading the word of God, which is mostly how we hear, are number one, an understanding of God's holiness and utter purity as we're reading. That's what we're seeing. And two, an understanding of our own tendency for falling into uncleanness. And so if we are reading the Word of God and we're listening daily in this way with open ears and we aren't hearing about God's holiness and our own inclination to fall into that uncleanness, then we aren't hearing well, right? We need to be hearing those two things. Well, lastly, let's come to the third speech now. It starts chapter, in chapter 6, and we have the Shema here. And so the key idea here in the first verse connected to the commandment is do. Right? This is the first word that's kind of the, the word following here. I'm giving you these commandments. Here we have the word do. So the verse says, now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules, right? Two, our two key words that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son, and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. And so we see some other ideas connected in here that that I would connect to this, to the final stages of salvation. And here we have time opening up. Le'olam va'et, we have time and the end of time and, and the fullness of time is something that we see at the, in the final stages of salvation. Um, so if you're following the progression of key words connected to the commandments here in in these different verses that begin the speeches. They are live, learn, and do. Live, be reborn, learn. Learn about me and come into covenant with me and do. Right? It, it, It all has to be, all that great learning and spirituality has to come to something in the world in the end. And so, we've also progressed from seeing, right, seeing, to hearing, to doing, with our legs, or you could say with our legs and our hands and our lower body. This third speech, again, is where we read the Shema. And what is at the heart of the Shema? It's really the commandment to love God. Well, how do we love God? And what does that have to do with doing Well, love is a verb, as they say. The emphasis here is that you love him by doing with your physical being, your flesh. And so we've moved now to um, bringing rectification to the flesh. And that involves loving God. And loving is doing. Well, speech one deals with two spiritual concepts, going all the way back to speech one, again, two spiritual concepts. It's life from the dead and worship of God alone, live and have no other gods, right? These are two spiritual things. Worship is spiritual. Life from the dead is spiritual. Well, speech number two deals with soulish concepts, including learning and the covenant. And now speech three should emphasize the flesh, the body. And that's exactly what we're seeing here. 
we can see the emphasis on loving with our physical being in the Shema itself. Doing, loving, doing with our physical being. And, you know, this has been curious to me in the past, and lately it's becoming more, beginning to gain some understanding about it. Have you ever noticed that the Shema is very specific? And the three parts of us that we are to love God with, it says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Well, in English, the progression of these three doesn't really come through. But the three words in Hebrew are levavka, heart, nafsheka, and meodeka, or lev, levav, nefesh, and meod. Well, these three are working their way down from the middle, right, from the heart, from the middle, down the body, right? And so if we have some of these things in our head, what they're all connected to, what these words are all connected to, we'll see, oh, there's a descent in these three that we are, how do we love God? Love him with your heart and your nefesh and your ma'od. Well, the heart is mentioned first, lavavka, it is the seat of the ruach, and the emotions, the ruach, that part of the soul, which in Judaism is called the ruach, and the emotions. The nefesh is mentioned next. Where is that seated? It's said to be seated in the gut. So we're coming down from the heart to the gut. And it's associated with the animal drives and instincts. Meodeka is understood to be our physical resources, especially money. How do we love God? We love God with our emotions and by rejecting worldly fears and embracing a warmth, right, an emotional warmth toward God. Sometimes we have to work for that. Sometimes that just comes, but sometimes we have to work for that. We love God with our nefesh by controlling our animal appetites and by putting those appetites to use to fill the earth and to strengthen our bodies nutritiously, right? (laughs) And we love God with our resources by rejecting our desire to accumulate and hoard wealth and instead put our resources and time to use for God's kingdom, furthering God's kingdom and strengthening it. So at the end comes love and echad, right? Love that we read about in the Shema, echad that we read about in the Shema. And then at the very end comes judgment. And we see this too in the final scene attached to this third speech. Remember, the second speech, uh, the first one was the cities of refuge. Um, In the second one, it was the scene of Israel's fear, and Moses, you go (laughs) and talk to God. And in this third speech, what comes here at the end is kind of a vision of God meeting out reward for those who love him and destruction for those who hate him, right? The judgment that comes at the end. Again, you just have to stand back and look at what God has designed here, and it's jaw-dropping. There's salvation, and there's salvation within salvation, and there's, I mean, it's a fractal, right? It's just every level, it's that same picture, right? You zoom in, oh, here we have the same picture. Zoom in again, oh, here we have the same picture. And so here we have a little microcosm within this Torah portion, and even within that Torah portion, we see this kind of sequence going on in something like the Shema that says, all your heart, all your nefesh, and all your ma'od, another sequence of the same. And so, these things don't emerge quickly from the text. Sometimes they do, but really this takes time to see into it. And it takes building on the insights of others, which means you first have to listen to the insights of others. And so there was someone there at Aleph Beta who did a video on these three mini-speeches in Vat Hanan, And um, someone else can look into those three speeches from a slightly different angle, as I have done here through this angle that I call the salvation pattern. The community works together in that way to build our understanding. I didn't notice that there are three separate speeches. Someone did. And when I see that and I say, oh, wow, 
well, three. I love the number three. <laughs> and in the end, God emerges from the Torah to wave at us. And he just, God comes out. The community works together, and we come up with these understandings, and there we see God staring out at us <laughs> and waving to us, saying, here I am. <laughs> you, can, you can see me now. Well, let's turn now to focus on Yeshua in this discussion. I want to make two quick points here. The first has to do with the one big change that we see in this restatement of the Ten Commandments here, which Grant points out in one of his teachings on Vayat Hanan. That big change is found in the fourth commandment regarding the Sabbath. In Exodus, the commandment to keep the Sabbath is connected to the creation story. It says there in Exodus 20 to remember the Sabbath, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So there we have the Sabbath connected to God creating in six days and resting on the Sabbath, the creation story. Here in Deuteronomy, on the other hand, the Sabbath is not connected to creation but to redemption. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. And so that's what it says there in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy, the Sabbath is connected not to creation, but to coming out of Egypt, redemption. And so what has changed for the nation from the Exodus Ten Commandments to the Deuteronomy Ten Commandments? Well, 40 years have passed after Israel agreed to the covenant, agreed to uphold the covenant. That's a lot of time to struggle and fall and to be in need of redemption in a new way, a very personal way. You see, because they were redeemed from Egypt, but Egypt wasn't their fault. They were born into that situation of slavery. It's different here in Deuteronomy now that the the second time the Ten Commandments are being given. They had agreed a long time ago to follow his Torah, to become personally responsible to the Torah. They're older. They've been walking with God. They've been trying to do it. And now their sin is their own sin, and their plight is their own plight. So at first the connection is to creation, now the connection is to redemption for the people who are responsible for their own sin. But um, Israel might say, yes, we sinned knowingly against the covenant, and we are sorry for that. And we can literally see the death our sin causes. Our hands are rough from digging graves here in the wilderness. But what could we have done How could we live up to this Torah perfectly? Who can do that? God, you have to do something, right? And so it's a sentiment that is very much on our lips in this part of the calendar. And it leads us straight to whom? It leads us straight to the Messiah. Israel is older and now they can see better the need for the redemption of the Messiah. And Joshua is about to step up for them. Well, lastly here today, I want to make a quick connection between the Torah, the Haftorah, and the Brit Hadashah readings. When we bring out just a few, um, the few most important words from each reading, a flow emerges, and it's going to say something to us. And so it goes like this, And I pleaded with God, saying, Please let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Well, can you see that, again, we are being pushed toward the Messiah, right? The the focus on redemption in the Ten Commandments. We have to be, well, what are we going to do? You know, what, (laughs) what can we do? God, do something. That pushes us toward the Messiah. Well, here, this alignment of this Torah portion, the half Torah, and the Brit Hadashah portion, it's also pushing us toward the Messiah. I pleaded with God for the good life, the full life in the land, says Moses. I, and God answers back to him, 
I see your distress, Moses, and I see your humility. You're the most humble of all men. But be comforted. The wholeness you seek will indeed be granted to you in due time. For now, prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. The answer I'm providing for you, the way that I am providing for you to follow is the Messiah. Prepare your own pathways now so that he can follow them in to dwell with you. Prepare the pathways of your hearts now and repent. And so that's what Moses does. He's, he goes and he does Deuteronomy. You know, He doesn't just say, well, God said no. So just take me now, Lord, what else do you... No, he says, "Hmm, I'm going to help prepare Israel for Joshua, right? He's preparing them. And so the three readings working together say, I pleaded for the good life and God comforted me by telling me to get ready for the coming of the Messiah. And we should note that Moses does indeed make it into the land of promise. We see him there at the transfiguration Moses is able to get into the land, but he has to do so through Yeshua, who is standing there with him on the mountain and with Elijah and with a couple of the apostles as well. So, or several of them. Well, that is God's design. We get into the land only through Yeshua, only through Yahashua, Joshua. That is the way into the land. Well, that's all for today. Thank you for listening. May God help us to be a people who mourn for that which breaks God's own heart. May we be a people who are quick to show love to our enemies, and in doing so, may our enemies be turned into our friends. May he awaken us more deeply to the story of Yeshua and salvation in the word and in the world. And may we rise up to be the people he has made us to be. Shalom.